Well, this evening I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. You may also want to have a finger in Matthew 20 and Mark 10 if you so dare. We're going to go ahead and take a look at the account of Jesus' miraculous healing of the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Although the Bible does not record every healing that Jesus performed, for even the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written, the Bible does record Jesus quite literally healing the great multitudes. In fact, it would appear that during Jesus' ministry, he successfully banished illness from Israel. As Matthew's gospel records in chapter 15, that the large crowds would come to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, mute, blind, and many others, and lay them at his feet, and that he, Jesus, would heal them, so that the crowds marveled as they saw the mute speak, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and in response, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, every recorded sign and miracle performed by our Lord during his life and ministry is unique and worthy of careful examination, ultimately serving as proof of his deity. But as our guiding verse through John's gospel taught us that these things have been written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. This evening, I would like for us to examine this one specific miracle as it emphasizes both the prophetic ministry and the power of Christ as foretold by the prophets, as he, the one who would open the eyes of the blind. For our Lord came not simply to heal those physically blind, but more importantly, to heal our spiritual blindness, a blindness to the truth of spiritual things, a blindness for which every man and woman born under sin suffers, a blindness that cannot be cured by any other means, but like Bartimaeus, we need another to do for us what nothing else and no one else can. In the story before us, we will see how through a chance encounter with Jesus, a blind beggar received not only the gift of sight, but also the gift of eternal life. This is a story that for all of us in Christ is our story. And for any of you who are not, I pray that this would be your story too. Now, Jesus' encounter with Bartimaeus is recorded, as I had mentioned, in each of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so often the case with different eyewitnesses, Observing the same event, no single gospel account records every detail of this encounter. To help us to that end, while we'll use Luke's gospel as the basis for our study this evening, we're going to examine the story more thoroughly by harmonizing the gospel accounts. Now, before we dive in in harmonizing this particular passage, it's necessary at the outset to point out two perceived discrepancies and quickly reconcile them. I say perceived because we know that the word of God is perfect and inerrant, that there are no errors or discrepancies in the word of God. As Psalm 19 declares, the word of the Lord is perfect. Any perceived discrepancy can be easily resolved with just a little bit of work. Sadly, because of the high rate of biblical illiteracy in the church, it's not surprising to find so many professing believers that not only have no idea what the Bible says, but sadly, and survey data confirms this, don't believe that the word of God is in fact the word of God. Tragically, when we no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God, but the word of man, it's no longer the word of God that we believe but ourselves. So what are these two perceived discrepancies? Well, first, is there one beggar or two? Matthew's account mentions two blind men, while Mark and Luke only record one. So how do we account for this? 
First, we can make sure the passages are recording the same event. Matthew records a similar healing of blind men in Matthew chapter 9. However, the timeline and location of this healing are different, and it's unlikely that Matthew would repeat the same healing twice in his gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this encounter all record the event as taking place during Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. So when we harmonize these three accounts, they all line up. They're all recording the same event. So what can account for this discrepancy? Well, as mentioned, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, seen from different perspectives and emphasizing different things. We ask anyone in law enforcement or any parent with multiple children, and they'll tell you that people observing the same event will give different testimony to what they saw. That's why it's so helpful to have multiple eyewitnesses from which a more complete picture of any event can be constructed. The explanation is simply that in Mark and Luke's account, they chose to emphasize the spokesperson of the two, Bartimaeus, whereas Matthew does not. We see this in the gospel account of the resurrection as well, where the two Marys at the garden tomb on the morning of the third day, Matthew and Mark record the presence of one angel, while Luke and John record the presence of two angels. Clearly, we don't dismiss the glorious truth of the resurrection because of this seeming discrepancy. Instead, we recognize the gospel writers chose to emphasize different things in their recorded accounts. It's the same thing here. We can rest comfortably that there's no discrepancy, there's no inconsistency. There were two blind men. But whether there's one blind man, two blind men, ten blind men is completely irrelevant. For whenever we approach the scriptures, our focus should be on seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As important as the two blind men are to our story, our focus, the focal point here, and always should be Jesus, the one who makes the blind to see, not the blind whose eyes were opened. For our purposes this evening, as I had mentioned, like Mark and Luke, we'll focus on the spokesman of the two, Bartimaeus. The second question we'll encounter in harmonizing these gospels is, does this encounter incur while they're entering Jericho or leaving Jericho? It sounds silly, right? But to the believer or to those early in their faith, the seeming discrepancy can be enough to cause one to question the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible. Again, this too can be easily explained with a little bit of work when we understand, as the Bible records, that there is actually two Jerichos. There's the old Jericho of Joshua 6 fame and a new Jericho built later in the ninth century by Heil the Bethlehite, as recorded in 1 Kings 16. Now, these two Jerichos were approximately a mile from, from each other, and it's the presence of these two that helps us understand this perceived discrepancy. Bartimaeus was somewhere along the road between the two Jerichos. Thus, his encounter took place both as Jesus was leaving Jericho, as Matthew's account records, and also while he was approaching Jericho, as Mark and Luke record. I belabor this point specifically just because, as Bible-believing Christians, we have to be absolutely convinced of the sufficiency of Scripture. All right, let's go ahead and jump in, and we'll study the encounter of Jesus and the blind beggar. I'll be reading from Luke 18, verse 35. Now it happened that as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They reported to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who went ahead were rebuking him so that he would be quiet, but he kept out crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. 
what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. We'll divide our story this evening into three parts. A divine appointment, a direct encounter, and finally, a dramatic change. Beginning with the divine appointment in verse 35. Now it happened that as Jesus was approaching Jericho, Mark adds, with his disciples and with a large crowd. So we begin where we should always begin anytime we open the Bible, with Jesus. For Jesus is the central character of the Bible from beginning to end. The book, the Bible is a book about Jesus. We should always be careful to approach the Bible in this manner, always with our eyes looking to Jesus. Now, as in any good Bible study, we'll carefully examine all the characters or groups in the story this evening. However, in doing so, we must be very careful to never take our eyes off of Jesus. We'll spend considerable time looking at this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, but we must never forget that he is but a supporting cast member to our story. Straight away, we find Jesus joined by his disciples in a large crowd traveling to Jericho on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Only days later, Jesus would enter Jerusalem for the final time of his earthly ministry, and then on the cross, ultimately accomplishing once for all time the Father's great plan for salvation. Throughout his three-year ministry, this is Jesus' only recorded visit to the city of Jericho. This new Jericho, as I had mentioned, was originally constructed in the ninth century, later expanded in the second, and included a huge palace complex that was built by Herod the Great during Jesus' early lifetime. The city was located along a well-traveled trade route, attracting lots of commerce and lots of tax revenue, as Zacchaeus could attest to. It was a frequent meeting place and stopover for travelers, particularly at this time of year. Located some 18 miles from Jerusalem, the route, as we read in the story of the Good Samaritan, was frequently used to ambush soul travelers. Needless to say, safety in numbers was the rule of thumb for anyone traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover. Naturally, we find Jesus with his disciples. They're joined by a large crowd made up of men, women, and children, eager to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There would have been a mix of emotions present, excitement and anticipation amongst the crowd, eager to reach Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration. But this journey was different for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus knew it, and to an extent, his disciples knew it too. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. And he had attempted on no less than three occasions to communicate this to his disciples. We see this in Matthew 16, 18, and 20. Tempted to plainly tell them, but scripture records these things were hidden from them and that they could not comprehend. Rather than share in the joy and the excitement of the crowd, confusion and fear was on the minds of the disciples. Confusion as to what Jesus had been saying about his pending death in subsequent resurrection, in fear of the Pharisees who had made their attentions known to arrest Jesus upon sight. Jesus, meanwhile, aware of all that would take place as he approached Jerusalem, did so with his face fixed like a flint on fulfilling his father's plan. This visit, as we see, was not by accident, but all according to God's providence. It had everything to do with a divine appointment, a divine appointment that God the Father had purposed and planned. Verse 35 continues, and a blind man, Mark adds, 
a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road begging. Suddenly and unexpectedly, we're introduced to a new character, a blind beggar whose Mark, Mark's gospel alone records as Bartimaeus. First question we ask is why, and why now? Given the gravity of the situation and all that lies ahead in the days to follow, why a blind beggar? Why now? For the disciples in the crowd, it would be hard to imagine a more pitiful sight. This grown man, unable to provide for himself, dependent upon others for his livelihood. His physical condition, as bad as it was, would have been compounded by the social stigma that he experienced because of his disability. The prevailing thought taught by the religious leaders in that day being that his disability was a result of sin, either his sin or the sin of his parents. We read this in John 9 when Jesus and the disciples, upon encountering a different blind man, ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? In some, Bartimaeus would have been considered an outcast, poor, vile, helpless, undeserving sinner, exactly the type of person that Jesus came to save. The passage before us also reveals a tremendous amount of information about our blind man, not necessarily evident to others. His name itself means the son of, that's the bar, Timaeus, which incredibly means highly prized. Now, in the eyes of the world, his name would have been a cruel form of irony. Highly prized by whom? We know the answer to that, highly prized by God. May this be a reminder for us, brothers and sisters, that we see all people as God sees them, as precious, highly prized, as individuals created in the image and likeness of God, with value and with worth. From the child in the womb to our greatest earthly enemy, every life is highly prized to God, and no one is beyond his power to save. Now, the fact that he's called a beggar shouldn't surprise us. It would almost go without saying that having suffered the loss of sight would condemn one to a life of begging, subsisting on the meager support provided by others, dependent on the mercy and kindness of others to survive. We see that Bartimaeus is opportunistic. Now, Scripture doesn't record whether or not he lives in and around the surrounding area of Jericho, <clears throat> but nonetheless, he knows that he can capitalize at this time begging during the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. His choice of location certainly couldn't have been by accident. On a well-traveled road where he depended upon the generosity of others, caught up in the excitement and the anticipation of the Passover, he counted on the fact that others would show him pity. As we read on, we also discover that unlike those born blind from birth, Bartimaeus was not always blind, a fact that would have been proof in the eyes of others that his condition was in fact punishment for his sin. And finally, we will see that while he may have been physically blind, he most certainly was not spiritually blind to the truth that the scriptures taught. For Bartimaeus today would have started out as any regular day, a day filled with hopelessness and despair, another day of sitting, waiting, begging, longing that he might somehow be relieved of his terrible condition, this curse, and travel with others to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But how and by whom? For as John 9.32 records, since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of the blind. Little did Bartimaeus know that today was not to be just another day. Today, he had a divine appointment with the one who, in fulfilling prophecy, came to provide the recovery of sight to the blind. Verse 36 goes on. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. Now, Bartimaeus was accustomed to the frequent Passover crowds. 
Bartimaeus this time observed something different about the crowd passing before him. Mark tells us in the previous verse that this was a large crowd or a great multitude, and the size of the crowd may certainly have stood out to Bartimaeus. However, and I'm speculating here, to Bartimaeus, he observed something different. It was more than just the mere size of the crowd. It was in the conversations. It was in the excitement. It was in the energy of this particular crowd. Bartimaeus hears something that makes this crowd stand out from all the others that had come before him. And so he asked the crowd, verse 37, and they, the crowd, reported to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth, the title of sorts, a title that indicated not only where this Jesus was from, the backwoods of Galilee, but more importantly, a name that served to distinguish him from anyone else who bore the name in the nation of Israel. A name that would, as it were, have set him apart from all others. A name that carried with it the weight and reputation that he had earned in his three years of ministry throughout Israel. For as he taught, he taught, teaching with, one, with great authority and marveling the crowds as he taught performing great miracles as he healed various and all forms of sickness, deformity, casting out demons, and even bringing the dead to life. A reputation that had spread throughout Israel, attracting crowds as well as detractors. While Jesus is not recorded to have ever traveled to Jericho before this very occasion, his reputation certainly had. And Bartimaeus knew at once who this Jesus of Nazareth was. Perhaps he had heard of Jesus' healing of the blind men in Matthew 9 or more recently, of the miraculous sign in Bethany in raising Lazarus from the dead. Regardless of how he had heard, he not only knew this Jesus by reputation, but he knew from scriptures exactly who this Jesus was. Physically blind as he may have been, he was not blind to the truth taught in scriptures. He knew this Jesus was not merely a good teacher or simply a prophet as sent by God. He knew this Jesus was the very Messiah, foretold by the prophets, the very Son of God, the Savior of Israel. And like Bartimaeus, I pray that all of us who profess to know Christ would know him in like manner. We would see Jesus as far more than a man with good moral teaching, as some in the secular community might profess. See him more as one of many sent by God, as so many false religions proclaim, but that we would see and know Jesus as God himself. The divine appointment set we see Bartimaeus' direct encounter with the great physician himself, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. In verse 38, Mark adds, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to call out, cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Seizing the opportunity in the midst of the crowds passing before Bartimaeus, he cries out to Jesus, the son of David. Now, scripture doesn't record by whom or how Bartimaeus first heard of the Messiah. But as we read in Romans, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It would have been likely that a young Bartimaeus would have been taught the Hebrew Bible from his parents from a young age, studying scripture, memorizing verses. But it could have been a grandparent, it could have been a neighbor, it could have been his fellow blind beggar that had taught him the truth. Regardless of from whom he learned, Somehow, before that day, Bartimaeus had heard of the Messiah to come as the prophesied and promised king, as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. We read that in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. We read of God's promise to David. 
He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Bartimaeus could see this Jesus of Nazareth, whose reputation for teaching and miracles preceded him, that this Jesus passing before him was none other than the son of David, the prophesied and future king of Israel, whose throne and kingdom God would establish forever. He may have recalled and connected the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, that God's chosen servant would be given as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. Or in chapter 35, where Isaiah writes, when speaking prophetically of the Messiah's second coming, that the eyes of the blind would be opened. Again, scripture doesn't record who the beautiful feet were that shared the good news with Bartimaeus, but we know by the words that he cries that he had heard the word of God and could see this Jesus was none other than the prophesied Messiah. And like Bartimaeus, each of us has someone to thank for sharing the gospel with us. It may have been our parents or grandparents, a family friend, a neighbor, a youth pastor, a perfect stranger. But God, in his infinite mercy, sent someone to share the good news with us. And in like manner, God uses each of us as clay pots as we are to share the good news and gospel with others. May this also be an encouragement to us to faithfully sow the seed of the God's word in the hearts of others, for we not know when or how the seed will sprout and grow. For it's God who gives the growth. Nevertheless, we faithfully sow and pray in anticipation of the harvest. Bartimaeus then cries out, he says, have mercy on me. Hopeless, helpless, unworthy, desperate, and in need, unable to do for himself, dependent upon another to do what he cannot do for himself. By very definition, what Bartimaeus is asking for is mercy. Bartimaeus not only knew who Jesus was, but he knew him to be merciful. And praise be to God that he is. For the very name of our God speaks of his mercy, as he declared to Moses when he revealed himself in the cleft of the rock and declared, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins, but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Bartimaeus' request to Jesus for mercy, like the tax collector who beat his breast and called out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is a request of every true believer who cries out to Jesus. It is in seeing both God for who he is and ourself for who we are in our proper perspective, acknowledging our sin, our wretchedness before a holy and righteous God, in seeing our utter inability to reconcile our situation that ultimately leads us to cry out for mercy. Bartimaeus understood that his only hope in crying out for mercy was to Jesus. We continue in verse 39, where we read, And those who went ahead, the crowd, were sternly rebuking him that he would be quiet. In response to this desperate plea from the blind beggar, we see the crowd ignore his cry. We see him seek to censure him rather than allow this man to be a distraction and an interruption. 
on their joyous pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They restrain him, trying to keep him away from Jesus. They're in essence telling this man to shut his mouth and go back to his begging, that he was not worth the time, he was not worthy of the interruption. He was not worthy of Christ's attention. It's their selfishness and pride, for they clearly think that they are better than he is, that he cannot, certainly is not worthy of Jesus' time. Not realizing, of course, as Jesus taught, that it's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick, for he came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Beloved, I pray that we too would guard against this sin of partiality, this fleshly tendency to look upon others with disdain and judge others unjustly on their appearance or worldly standards, that we would never see ourselves as the arbitrators of who can come to Christ. May we never behave in such manner like the disciples who sought to keep the children from Jesus. May we, having received the grace of God, always seek to be used by him to bring others into his loving presence, no matter how different they might appear. Undeterred by the crowd's attempt to silence him, Bartimaeus repeats his cry for mercy, this time with even greater fervency and desperation. Verse 39, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. One commentator remarks, Bartimaeus' original cry is a ordinary loud shout to gain attention. The second time in crying out all the more, this is the instinctive cry of an ungovernable emotion. It's a scream. It's an almost animal-like cry. Bartimaeus repeats his request, confident that Jesus will hear his desperate plea for mercy. As scripture records, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. It's Matthew 7, 7 and 8. For Bartimaeus, his persistence would pay off. Verse 40, Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Unlike the crowd, to Jesus, the blind man was worth the interruption. To Jesus, all else was placed on hold for this one man and his desperate cry. The journey to Jerusalem, the cross, Calvary, in Christ's heart, nothing else was more important in that moment. This is Jesus' response to all who cry out to him for mercy. To all who cry out in repentance and faith, no one will be denied. We know this truth ourselves for our very lives speak to this promise. It also serves as a helpful reminder for us, as I once heard a pastor remark, that interruptions are, in fact, the ministry. Now, this was said in the context of vocational ministry, but I feel it's equally important to all of us. It's easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of our day and miss the opportunities for ministry that exist all around us, but instead that we would see those little interruptions as opportunities to minister to the needs of others. As we read in Philippians 2, that we would count others more significant than ourselves. In humility, place the needs of others before ourselves. Have this mind amongst us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus halted the procession and commanded the crowd to bring the man forward. See, to Jesus, Bartimaeus was worth the interruption. Here it's helpful to insert Mark 49 and 50, who adds, So the crowd calls the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, get up, he is calling for you. And throwing off his outer garment, Bartimaeus jumped up and came to Jesus. Having been rebuked by Jesus for their indifference to the blind beggar's plea for mercy, the crowd now takes an encouraging tone. 
Get up, they tell him, be of good cheer. No doubt curious as to what might take place next. Note how Jesus extends this personal invitation to come to him through others. We see our Lord Jesus use the crowd to call Bartimaeus to himself. What an incredible honor and privilege it is to be used by God to bring others to him. The crowd then says to Bartimaeus, Jesus is calling for you. can only imagine how glorious these words must have been to Bartimaeus. To hear that he, Jesus, God himself, was calling him. This was a personal invitation extended by the hand of God. Setting aside the crowd, in spite of the immensity of the situation and all that would have made him, Jesus calls the blind man to himself. What grace, what mercy, what love Jesus has for Bartimaeus, what love he has for undeserving sinners like us. Notice that Jesus calls Bartimaeus to come to him exactly as he is. He doesn't tell him to go and clean himself up. He doesn't instruct him to do anything before coming to him. He's simply to come as he is. It's that same personal invitation continues and exists today. And in the context of fishing, we are called to be the fishers of men. It's our job to catch them. It's his job through the word and the work of the Spirit to clean them. Be good and wise for us to remember this. So at this call, Bartimaeus then throws off his outer garment and jumps up, and he comes to Jesus. With excitement, anticipation, and joy, Bartimaeus responds to the call of Christ. So the original language here is important. In saying he threw off his outer garment, it means that he's casting away or figuratively to let go of, to lose. He's not setting it aside to return to later. It means to let go of a thing without caring where it falls. Scripture recorded that he jumps up. Again, this is the same word used by Matthew to describe his own call from Jesus in chapter 9, where he stood up and followed Christ. This is the response of all the sheep who hear the voice of the great shepherd and follow leaving behind that to which we formerly clung. Now, whether Bartimaeus has counted the cost, we do not know. We don't know, but we do have every indication and will later be confirmed that at the call of Christ, he's decided to leave his old life behind, never to return. We too came to Christ in like manner. We come with joy and gratitude, leaving our old life behind, running into the arms of our gracious Redeemer. Luke continues, Verse 40 and 41. And when he came near, Jesus questioned him and said, what do you want me to do for you? Standing face to face with Jesus, he asked Bartimaeus a question. As God, Jesus knows. He knows the beginning to the end. He knows man's heart. He knows Bartimaeus' question. Nevertheless, he wants to hear him ask it. The question that Jesus asks isn't just any question. It's really the question. What is it that Bartimaeus wants Jesus to do for him? It's the same question that all of us who are brought before our Lord and Savior must answer for ourselves. What is it that we are seeking? What is it that we are asking Jesus to do for us? Are we seeking as so many false gospels of prosperity claim? Are we seeking health and wealth and happiness? Are we seeking physical healing? Are we seeking promotion? Are we seeking moral guidance so that we can be better or good people? Are we looking to improve our situation? Are we looking, as it were, for a back pocket insurance policy just in case, or for another ornament to hang on our tree? Or 
are we, in recognition of our abject spiritual poverty, with repentance and humility, prostrating ourselves before the throne of the living God, admitting our unrighteousness, our wretchedness, our unworthiness before our holy God? Are we coming before Christ, confessing our sin, recognizing the impossibility of our situation, that our sin, our rebellion has separated us from a holy and righteous God, admitting that there's nothing in ourselves that can rectify our situation, no works, no deeds, nothing, nothing but the person and power of Jesus Christ. See, this is our great need. This is what we need Jesus to do for us, to do what only Jesus can do, to do what Jesus came to do. See, Bartimaeus knew what he needed Jesus to do. Verse 41 continues, And he, the blind man, Bartimaeus, said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus begins his answer by acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Lord, or Greek, or Kairos in the Greek, master. This is not simply a title of respect or deference he makes to Jesus in the hopes of curing his favor. This is much more than that. This is a cry of submission. This is a cry of surrender. In confessing with his mouth Jesus is Lord, he is by implication surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, to see Jesus as anything less than Lord simply will not do. As scripture records one day at the second coming of Christ, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This much is not up for debate. Jesus is Lord. Bartimaeus knows this. I pray that all of us know this as well. He says, I want to regain my sight. Having acknowledged Jesus as Lord, he humbly and confidently requests Jesus to do what only he can. See, it is his request, is evidence that he believed that Jesus could do what he asked for. It's Jesus who alone can restore sight to the blind and make the blind to see. For the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, Psalm 146, 8. For what is impossible with man is possible with God, Luke 18, 37. For if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John 9, 33. Luke continues in verse 42. Matthew is helpful here and adds, And moved with compassion, Jesus touched his eyes and said, Receive your sight, your faith has saved you. It's the compassion of Christ. He who in compassion raised the widow's son in Nain, who in compassion healed the leper who came to him in Galilee, like the father who looked upon the prodigal with compassion, or the crowds upon whom Jesus looked and felt compassion, seeing that they were helpless, helpless, hapless as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks upon this poor blind beggar and his request with compassion. Oh, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? Is it not the compassion of our Lord? Matthew says, Jesus then touched his eyes. He who spoke the world into existence, he who upholds all things by the word of his power, he that formed the eye, can he not heal it? For there's nothing too great or too small that our Jesus cannot do. Jesus said, receive your sight, your faith has saved you. The inference being here that not only was Bartimaeus physically healed, but he was cured of his spiritual ailment as well. Like Abraham, who believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, so too Bartimaeus' faith, his trust, his belief in the prophetic promises and saving power of Christ made him well. This is important here. It was not that his faith created the cure. That wasn't it. But rather, it was his faith that was the means by which he received the cure. 
This is the power of Christ, who alone can not only open the eyes of the blind, but open our blind spiritual hearts as well. Wretched, miserable, poor, pitiful, blind as we are, does not our Lord look upon all of us, each and every one of us, in compassion? With love, with mercy, full of grace, he sees us, granting our request, our greatest need to forgiveness to all who cry out to him, to all unworthy, to all the most viable of sinners who call out in faith and with repentance. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican priest two centuries ago, remarks, and I love this, that we should regard every one of Christ's miracles as an emblem and figure of spiritual things. We should see them as a lovely picture of what he is able to do for our soul. He that could raise the dead with a word can just as easily raise a man from the death of sin. He that can give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and speech to the dumb can also make sinners to see the kingdom of God, hear the joyful sound of the gospel, and speak forth the praise of redeeming love. He that could heal leprosy with a touch can heal any disease of the heart. He that can cast out devils can bid every besitting sin to yield to his grace. Oh, that we would read Christ's miracles in this light. Last, we'll look at the dramatic change that came about as a result of his direct encounter with Jesus. Verse 43 records, And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, Mark adds, on the road, glorifying God. Now, all three gospel writers, were, all three gospel writers use one of Mark's favorite words here and say immediately to describe the instantaneous nature of this healing. Bartimaeus was healed on the spot. Bartimaeus' response, the fruit in keeping with repentance, if you see, reveals that this healing was not merely physical, but spiritual as well. His physical malady revealed he doesn't simply go his own way or return to his old life, but he begins to follow Christ. Having been made new, having been spiritually transformed, having received the gift of salvation, he sets out to follow Christ on the narrow road. He sets out to walk in the way of his Lord and Savior, Jesus, who, by his own declaration, is the way. He sets out not only to follow Jesus, but to glorify him, to praise him, to magnify him, to extol him, to celebrate his divine character, attributes, and being, celebrate his great plan for salvation. He gives Jesus what is his and his alone, our worship, adoration, and affection. We do this by loving him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. We glorify him with our lives, the thoughts we think, the words we speak, the actions that we take. Bartimaeus's response to Christ's gift of grace is to follow and to glorify him. This is no cheap grace. He doesn't continue in his old life having received the gift of grace. The question we must ask ourselves who profess to be Christians is, are we following Christ? Does our lifestyle match our profession of faith? Are we new creations or are we living like Gentiles? The Bible teaches that we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, Ephesians 4, 17. We're called to glorify God in our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. See, when we fully grasp the wretchedness of our rebellion and sin against our holy and righteous God, when we understand our helpless, impossible situation, when our eyes are open to the spiritual truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, that our sin debt has been paid, we have been forgiven, we have received his righteousness, We've been adopted as children of God into his family and given the gift of eternal life. 
We have received all of this as a free gift, a gift of grace, not because of any good he saw in us, but because of his mercy, the great love with which he loved us. When we see how much Jesus loved us, how can we do anything less than surrender our will and our lives to follow our precious Lord and Savior Jesus? As we go this evening, I would encourage you to examine yourselves to see if your lives, like Bartimaeus, matches your profession of faith. Clearly, the Bible teaches that sanctification is a lifelong process. However, if you're habitually practicing sin or harboring secret sin, you need to confess and repent, confident in our faithful and righteous God to forgive. Luke ends, and then when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It's only fitting that we should end here as we do. Having witnessed what they did, there was no other proper response from the crowd but to give God what is his due. And like the crowd, do we praise God for his wonderful work, his work in salvation, to see his plan for redemption, a plan formed before the foundations of the world to gather a people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue for himself? Do we rejoice with God in the presence of angels to see others brought into God's everlasting kingdom? See, lest any of us think that salvation is about us, it's, it's not. Ultimately, God's purpose in salvation is his glory. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sake, so that his grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, for you are great and do wondrous things, for you alone are God. We thank you, Father, for your infinite mercy, for your great plan of salvation to bring sinners to you. We thank you, Father, for opening our blind spiritual eyes, for opening our eyes to the reality, Lord, of who you are, of who we are, and the impossibility of our position except the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as you have opened our eyes, that you will continue, continue that great ministry in opening the eyes of others around us, those in our family, our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, those in our circles of influence, Lord, that you would continue your great work. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the great need all around us. You would help us, Father, to keep our eyes fixed on you. Father, I ask that you would bless this people as we go this evening, and that I ask this all, Lord, to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Christ Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. <laughs>